Good evening. It's good to see you here. It's good to be with you. We have the privilege this evening of opening God's Word together. We're going to be studying the book of Nehemiah, um, as you well know. And so I invite you to have your Bibles open. We're going to begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Let's go to God in prayer. Great God and Father in heaven, you are the powerful God. You are the one who keeps his covenant with his people. You are the one who remembers his servants. You are the one who has established all things and uphold all things by the power of your hand. Praise be to your name. Father, we desire to honor you in our lives and in our worship and in our devotion to the study of your word. So help us in this. Help us as the, this group of people to work together for, for good, to put our hands to uh, the work that's before us, to build up your kingdom and the church in this place. And we pray, Father, as we open your word, that we will gain the wisdom that is, it is designed to impart to us, so that we will be fruitful servants of yours, pray that all that we do will magnify you and promote your cause. Please forgive us, Father. We confess our sins before you, and we desire a clean slate with which to serve you, uh, even beginning this very night. And we pray all these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus the Christ. to open a very exciting book. I'm excited about this study. Um, so the book of Nehemiah comes in this uh, little pair. It's the last one of these uh, books we'll be studying for this quarter. Studying the period of the return. And um, this has been very profitable so far already, and I hope it will continue to be. This is an exciting book. It's a surprising book. Um, it's a bewildering book in some ways, but it is absolutely full of wisdom and lessons, um, and that's what I'm intending for us to, to see from this. Just by way of introduction, this is a recap of the groundwork laid by Mr. John Grimmett as he began um, this study during the period of the return, and this is just to remind ourselves of what we're seeing here. We have... The book of Nehemiah, you'll see it there on the right-hand side. So uh, the years there, uh, 446 approximately, beginning there, and that, that shows where we need to be. That is about all we're going to say about the historical context of this book. He, uh, like I said, Mr. Grimman has covered that. We are, maybe the one other thing I'll say is that we're coming right on the heels of the events of Esther. And that's very fitting because that's, that's what we just wrapped up, an, another very profitable study. And so <clears throat> the king there in Esther, the Xerxes, well, his now we are to his um, uh, prede uh, not predecessor, successor, uh, Artaxerxes. And you'll see him as one of the characters in this book. But just as um, a word of our approach as we enter into uh, this study. My intention is not so much to treat it as a history, 
um, although that can be valuable. But I think the more valuable thing, especially in this book, is to treat it as basically a character study. Now, we'll, we'll consider everybody involved, but especially Nehemiah and Nehemiah's character. Because in him we have a man after God's own heart, absolutely. And um, so what we want to see, we, we want to understand what his character is like. Because um, we want to know um, how to conduct ourselves in this world, and this, and this word is teaching us this. And so we need to look at godly men and women in the Bible and say, how do they conduct themselves in this world? How do they, how do they carry themselves um, when they come to interactions with other people? What do those look like? And then how do they react to all the situations a person might encounter in uh, this life? And I think by doing that, we'll be really well served and we'll be gaining the lessons we're intended to gain uh, from this book. Um, and one other note about how I intend to help us approach this study. If you'll actually turn to Nehemiah chapter 8, what we find there, we're jumping ahead, but this, this will uh, kind of explain how we'll go about this study. Um, as it may be just a, a little bit different than what we're used to, uh, but only just a little bit. Um, in Nehemiah chapter 8, we come to the occasion where Ezra is reading from the book of the law. So it's like a Bible study. The, the people need to know what God's word is saying. And Ezra is the one who will read, and then there are others who uh, give explanations. So notice there in Nehemiah chapter 8, this is verse 7. So a number of men, including Jeshua, Bani, uh, Sherebiah, Jamin, okay, so these and the Levites, they explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. I think what we see here is actually a very good blueprint for good Bible study. And so let's look at these things. I've underlined some of the key phrases in here that you see. It does say, first of all, that the Levites explained the law, but how, how that comes about is, first of all, they read from the book, from the law of God. It's very important for us to be reading the Scriptures publicly. Paul urged Timothy. He says you have to devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture. So to the extent that we can... I intend to read the text that um, we're studying. Don't misunderstand me. I know it's impractical in some cases to read, try to read 200 verses and say anything coherent about that in plenty of Bible studies. Some of them just have to be overviews. I think um, we have the uh, leisure and the luxury of enough time to cover this book, I hope, and really let our ears hear these words. We're going to say quite a bit about a man who has the law of God written on his heart. And this is what we hope to accomplish um, in our lives. So, but you'll see that there was first the reading. And then, uh, as we said, the explaining of the law so that nothing is misunderstood. And then this word, translating, to give the sense. 
again, so that they understood the reading. Most of the time we think of translating as being something that does, okay, we have to get uh, some text from this language or some words from this language to this language. It's really just talking about, it's just moving something from here to here. You might think of that as basically saying, and you, you've heard it said, you, I'm just trying to get the message across. That's what they were doing. They are reading from it and trying to get the message across. So translating it um, from the book uh, to our ears and to our understanding. And so to, you can hold me accountable to this. This is what I intend to do in our study of the book. And that brings us to chapter 1. Here we find Nehemiah in captivity, uh, in service there. More about that in a minute. And we begin noticing that these are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And the account begins this way. Now it happened in the month Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah... Came And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. Nehemiah says, how are things back home? You have to tell me. And um, from this very first moment, we, we will get our uh, very first lesson about the character of a godly person. Uh, from the very first words of this. Um, but first notice... That in verse uh, 4, well, no, we'll do, we'll do it this way. Well, first notice that righteous men, godly men, always have a deep concern for God's people and um, for the city of God. And that was true then, and that's true now. In 2 Corinthians 11, you'll recall what Paul said. He says, you know, I've been through a lot of things, and on top of that... There's this daily pressure of the concern for the churches. In fact, he said in verses 28 and 29, he calls it intense concern. And godly people always have concern for the well-being and the welfare of the people of God. And you'll recall um, the Apostle John. He is another example of this. In his third epistle, he says, um, you know, beloved... I, I want to know that you're, and my prayer is that your soul prospers. Uh, no, sorry, that, that you prosper in every respect, even as your soul prospers. And so he's, he's deeply concerned about the welfare of um, God's people. And then he says in verse 4, he says, you know, I was glad to hear. When, your when I heard your children were walking in truth, I have, remember, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in truth. And so... Um, this is how all godly people conduct themselves. And godly people are concerned about the city of God. Um, well, not for us Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what Hebrews 12 says. We are part of a heavenly kingdom. And um, we have come to a heavenly Jerusalem. And we uh, will be displaying our concern for spiritual things, for kingdom things. And we'll be seeking first the kingdom and then we'll be much like Nehemiah. <clears throat> but it's not good news that he receives. Um, and in verse 3, they said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. 
not good news. So it's trouble for the people of God and trouble for the city of God. And here's our attempt at some alliteration here. So let's notice, first of all, it's distress. And um, we'll call it disrepute. There's, there's reproach on them because of the state of things. It's, it's really bad shape. And there's danger. You see that the wall is broken down and the, the gates as well. Um, they're just uh, for the prey. And chapter 2, verse 17 will say, you know, it's a desolation. So that's the, the state of things back home. And as you would expect, this is, this is not um, taken lightly by someone who has such uh, concern. So look at verse 4. <clears throat> Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Our second second thing we'll notice is that a godly man will uh, weep and mourn and fast and pray as it's appropriate. You remember what those blessed people that Jesus talks about in his Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 5 and, and others, he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And, when, um, and these are, this is a mourning about uh, spiritual things that, should, that we should notice. And they will fast and pray. Um, <clears throat> there you'll recall Anna in Luke chapter 2 was this prophetess who she was looking for the Messiah, but it says night and day. She spent in fasting and prayers. And this, the Lord rewarded her for her dedication. And she uh, saw the Messiah. And just one final note. In Ezekiel chapter 9, we're thinking about the people who mourn. Um, the, the, the man was to go through the city. Who was going to be spared? The destroyer is going to kill them all. But he says, you go through and place a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in the city. And so when the city is in distress because of sin, because of reproach, or uh, because of the enemies, um, a godly man will uh, mourn this. And he prays, he, he uh, documents his prayer for us so that we understand what it is he um, is, you know, what it is that he's saying to the Lord. In verse 5, and I said, I beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive. But there in in verse 5, there's a reference to what I'll call the name character. I almost use that as one word, the name character of God. There's a very helpful passage in Exodus chapter 20, and the text is, uh, some of these uh, words are repeated in Exodus 34, by the way. In Exodus 20, it's the giving of the law. You remember this, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, 10 and 20. And God is identifying himself to the people, but he doesn't just give his name and say, that, that's, that's sufficient to identify me. Absolutely not. He tells who he is. Do you remember at the beginning of the book of um, Exodus, he says, when Moses said, who am I going to tell the people? You've sent me. But who am I going to tell them? It has, you know, why, why have I been sent? He says, I am who I am. So who is God? You could say, well, his name is Jehovah. But he is who he is. 
And his name is tied up in his character. More about that in just a minute. But when he identifies himself, he says in verse 5, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But, and this, these are the words that Nehemiah is saying, but showing loving kindness to thousands, uh, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And in chapter 34, I'll read this too because there are some extra little uh, phrases included that are very helpful. What I want you to hear uh, about this is, I believe I can support that these, this character of God explains all, all, A-L-L, of his interactions with people for all time. And, you know, if you, if you understand this, you'll understand why God acts in the way he does. Why is he throwing his people away to be things? Oh, now he's bringing them back. Is God a fickle God? No, he is absolutely, perfectly consistent with his character. And in Exodus 34, you'll remember, Moses is under a very difficult situation. He says, I can't go with these people. They're they're too much for me. You, You need to help me. And what he asked God to do was to show him his glory. Well, no man can see the face of God and live. So what can be done about this? Well, God says, okay, in the cleft of this rock, you wait. And I will pass by. And I will show you my glory. And I will, listen, declare the name of the Lord to you. So we can expect what happens when he goes by. Well, as you know, this is a tremendous, um, tremendous sound. And... You could say, what is he going to say if he's just declaring the name of the Lord? He's going to say, Jehovah. That's not the the fullness of what he says. In verse 6 of Exodus 34, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. He proclaimed the name of the Lord before Moses. His name. He is. God is who he is. And so this explains, um, as I said, God's interactions with men. And it explains why um, Nehemiah makes reference to this. Nehemiah knows Jehovah. He knows who he is and, and, and his character. And he makes reference to that in his prayer um, uh, more than once. But we, we pointed out here uh, to, to, to establish that. But I want you to notice also, right off the bat, Nehemiah has the words of Moses. It's really the words of God written by Moses. Nehemiah has the words of Moses written on his heart. And we'll say much more about that as we go along. Now, here's, here's after he addresses God, verse 6, he um, pleads with him. Let thine ear now be attentive, and thine eyes open to hear the prayer of thy servant, which I am praying before thee now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. What you have here is a humble request. Father, let, you know, let, let your ear be attentive to 
what I'm saying. So he has confidence in approaching God, as we do too, and we'll say something about that. Confidence, but he's not making demands. He's still asking. He's still asking. And that's a very, very humble approach. Um, and it references a firm promise because Psalm 34 will say this very thing, that the, um, the, the eyes of the Lord, you, you know, the eyes of the Lord um, are on the, are the I, I'm sorry, um, I'm not going to get it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open or attentive. To their cry. Look at verse 17. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. We're getting a taste of the story of Nehemiah. He's a man who God will listen to, but he's a man who will encounter troubles, and that um, we'll see uh, vividly. Nehemiah, though, knows that the Lord is attentive. And he says, I know you'll be attentive. Nehemiah has the words of the Psalms written on his heart. Now, 1 Peter 3, verses 12 through 14, um, remind us of the same thing. The same principle, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. And listen to the uh, promise that the Lord makes to his people in 1 John 5. And this is just by way of reminder. This, the same is true for us. Verse 14, and this is the confidence which we have before Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever he, we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked of Him. So, and, and Nehemiah truly, absolutely believes these things. And he's convinced of it, and he has confidence, but he comes humbly asking the Lord to hear his prayer. And on the basis of the Lord's care, he's later going to encourage the people with the assurances of God's care and protection. And um, that will uplift them greatly. So coming back to Nehemiah. Here in verse 7. He's confessing the sins of the people. He says, We have acted very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which thou didst command thy servant Moses. So here we have, first of all, an admission of guilt. And all godly people will confess their sins, and they will pray on behalf of their fellow brethren. Um, because of their sins as well. More about that in a minute. But it's also an acknowledgement of God's just and right ways. And I say this because you'll see when the godly men pray, that they'll say, we're in a bad situation. It's a bad situation. Now, don't misunderstand me, God. This is, this is paraphrase of what they say. What you, what you do is, tr- is right and just, because we are the ones who have sinned. And we know your word, and you said you would throw us away. You would let the nations carry us away if we were not faithful. And we have not been faithful. But you are true and just. And they're very careful not to impugn the, uh, the Lord's honor. See? Um, even though they're saying we're in a bad situation, and it's come about as, 
you know, from your hand, we know this. But in seeking his relief, they, he, he wants in no wise to impugn the honor of the Lord. And his people are always very cautious of that. Now, he asks the Lord to remember. Verse 8. Remember the word which thou didst command thy servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. Nehemiah has the words of Leviticus written on his heart. He quotes it um, almost exactly. And now, in verse 9, um, the words of Deuteronomy. But, the promise is, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you have been scattered, uh, though, uh, though those of you who have been scattered were in the remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. So the Lord's firm promise is, first of all, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. Um, but then you recall that beautiful scene in the, at the end of Deuteronomy where Moses is saying, okay, I'm leaving you. And he sends the people, the, the, the blessings and the cursings from the two mountains. And this falls right in that context. He says, if you return to me, I will gather you. And so what Nehemiah is doing here is he's seeking the Lord and the Lord's favor on behalf of all the people and confessing these sins. And in that's essentially also a reference to Leviticus 26 because he's, God says, you confess those sins and, and acknowledge them, and then uh, I will bring you back. The, so we acknowledge God's just and right ways. You remember what Abraham said, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? It's a rhetorical question. Yes, he will. He absolutely will. Um, and uh, Nehemiah calls on that character of God as well. But godly people acknowledge their sins and the sins of their brethren. And now in verse uh, 10. And they are thy servants and thy people, whom thou didst redeem by thy great power and by thy strong hand. Those are the very words of Exodus. And the reminders are given in Deuteronomy. Nehemiah has the words of Moses written on his heart. So God is faithful to his covenant and to his nature. The people have sinned, um, but there is a return. And they are seeking to return to the Lord, and, and Nehemiah seeks them on their behalf. And then he says, O Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive, he says again, to the prayer of thy servant, and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name, and make thy servant successful today, and grant him compassion before this man. So he has a specific prayer here um, for what he has in mind, some godly intentions, um, so that he can help his brethren. And great confidence he has that this prayer will be answered. So let's, uh, let's talk about some lessons that we've uh, noticed here in Nehemiah chapter 1. This is true of all godly people, and we're getting it from the example of Nehemiah. That's kind of small, I apologize. Godly people care for the welfare of God's people and for the city of God. 
and we take Nehemiah and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John as examples of that. And they weep and mourn and fast when it's appropriate. <clears throat> Furthermore, they'll pray night and day um, in conjunction with those things. And as part of that, they're going to acknowledge and confess the sins of, of themselves and of the brethren in, a, in, in that prayer for mercy. You'll notice that um, we don't know anything against Nehemiah's character. It's not that he has no sin, but he includes himself in this. And you'll see that a number of times in the prayers of godly men. He says, I and the brethren have sinned. When, when they're going after the foreign wives, we've sinned in this matter, Father. And he, it's such a humble um, mode of prayer. But um, let's not forget the uh, power of prayer and the importance of confessing these th things. Furthermore, godly people are peacemakers. And especially not among men but especially in the, the vertical relationship between men and God. Uh, of course, there's the statement in Matthew, blessed are the peacemakers. But notice what James says about peacemakers. And this is essentially what Nehemiah's prayer is trying to bring about. Peace between the children of Israel and God. So in this, but in uh, James chapter 3, and there at the very end, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So godly people are seeking to make peace. And the way they do that is by planting the seed that has the fruit of righteousness. Um, and so that is uh, more of the character of godly people. Then they're humble. Uh, a number of statements in the scriptures uh, from the Old Testament spanning through the New Testament. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. It's like, we clothe ourselves so that our nakedness is not seen. If we need to clothe ourselves with humility, there's something else that needs to be not seen. What needs to be seen is humility. And so we're putting that on, um, he says. And... Um, we didn't say a lot about this throughout there, but it's in there that godly people will magnify the Lord uh, in their prayers and in their speech and on every occasion. Um, and I think you've gotten the, uh, the message on this one. Godly people have God's law written on their hearts. And that's um, the, the real central um, takeaway from... Nehemiah chapter 1. You'll recall in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is instructing him. He says, you teach your children and you write these, the words of God on your doorposts and on your gates. The word of the law needs to be written on your hearts. You teach your children so that it will be written on your hearts and teach your fellow man. And that was always his intention. But Israel fell short. So, you'll see a reference there to Jer Jeremiah 31. This is in the promise of the new kingdom. In the new kingdom, God says, they're not going to have to teach every man you know, his neighbor. And this is talking about within the kingdom, saying, know the Lord, for they all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And he says, what I desire is that they are the people that have my law written on their hearts. And so we fulfill what Israel didn't fully fulfill, or we need to be. 
if we're doing our job properly. It strikes me, too, that Psalm 1 is the story of Nehemiah. And so we'll, we'll notice a number of things about that because he is the man whose delight, I tell you what, say it with me. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law, say it with me, he will meditate day and night. And he will be like a tree. We're going to see Nehemiah become like a tree. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which brings forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf will not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. This is the story of Nehemiah. And it says... The ungodly are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. And Nehemiah will encourage his brethren and say, don't, you don't even need to listen to the enemies. God will fight for us. They don't, they're nothing. They're chaff. And so how blessed, how blessed is this man? That's the story of Nehemiah. So that's what Psalm 1 uh, says. Well, let's come back to uh, the text and there read in chapter 2. And it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, um, sometime later it is, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Uh, I don't know that we read, actually, there at the very end of chapter 1, there's a last little uh, section there, now I was cupbearer to the king. So that's where he is, that's his position, and um, it is time for the king to be served. But in verse 2, um, no, uh, so there at the end of verse 1, now I, I had not been sad in his presence, um, not up until this time. But in verse 2, the king notices. King says, Why is your face sad, though you're not sick? And you can imagine this is a vulnerable situation. If you go into the presence of the king, that's essentially in their. Uh, view as like the presence of deity. You have no business being uh, sad in the presence of the king. Make that face, turn that frown upside down. Make the king uh, think that you are delighted to be in his presence. But Nehemiah cannot, and, and we know why. The king says, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid, you can imagine. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should, my, why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate, and its gates have been consumed by fire. And so the report has really weighed heavily on him. And he spent the intervening time praying and saying, Father, grant me favor and grant your servants favor. But especially his prayer as we'll see, is for what he intends to do for the people of God. But notice, just notice briefly, notice how gracious he is in his speech. Notice that he honors, he's going to honor the king throughout this. And um, he, ha he harbors no resentment or bitterness because he's in, in service, um, because his you know, he's, his people are enslaved and they're, they're carried away into captivity and they can't be home in their homeland that, where he desires to be. <clears throat> but he doesn't harbor any of that um, and honors the king in his gracious speech. And so do 
all godly people. So the king in verse 4 said, what would you request? You think, oh, well that's a, that's a great and uplifting thing to, to hear. The king is going to ask what it is that I want to do. So I prayed to the God of heaven. So quickly, right there in the presence of the king, Nehemiah prays. What did he pray? Well, it's not stated, but I don't think it's hard for us to understand what that probably would have been. Uh, no doubt it could easily have been an extension of this prayer that he's been praying all along. Um, there, especially in verse 11 of the previous chapter, where he says, Please be attentive to my prayer, but grant thy servant a compassion before this man, before the king. Um, and I think it must certainly, the prayer must certainly have been something along those lines. Perhaps also for just, like I said, gracious speech winsome or persuasive speech. He says, I have something big that I want to ask of the king. Father, help me um, before this man. Um, so whatever those things may be. But in stressful and important situations, as well as at all other times, but especially in these stressful and important situations, godly people rely on prayer. And they're not ashamed to do so. And this is just such a beautiful thing. I, as we're considering um, what he did here. Consider this also. What if, when we encountered any stressful or important situation, even if it's something where we think, my input is required right now, it's like, what if we paused and said, this is too important not to pray to God about it? I can imagine um, a thousand different reasons. Uh, that this might be important for us. You might be thinking of, you know, favor like Nehemiah was, or just a peaceful exchange of words, a gentle answer like Proverbs 15 talks about. Um, you know, I, I need a gentle, this, uh, you know, this, this person is uh, speaking evil of me. So just think, what if we were speaking with our boss or speaking with, um, you know, a, a sibling, your brother or sister, or a spouse. What if we're talking to our spouse? And I've said something inflammatory. And she says, Father, help me to have a gentle answer. Like, that, what, a, what a beautiful uh, thing that would be. And how much um, we would avoid. Um, but yeah, just think about that. What about your roommate? What about your coworker? How much trouble could we avoid if we were to briefly say, this is too important not to pray to the Lord. Um, and we know that, so we quickly do that. Um, it would serve us well if we were to do that. But he gives his request in verse 5. And I said to the king, again, gracious speech, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. The, then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I gave him a definite time. So this answers the prayer that he had prayed in chapter 1. It says, grant me favor and compassion in the sight of this man. God, God gives him compassion. It says, the king was pleased to send me. Um, 
And it's plain to see, as, we'll, as you know, it becomes even more clear later, um, that God's hand is shaping all of these events. Um, and that's just a reminder of what is said in Proverbs 21. Um, and we'll also make reference to um, what was said in, in the class we in the words of Ezra as well. But in Proverbs 21 and verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So God causes this man to look with favor on Nehemiah's request, and it pleased the king. Moving quickly along, He further asks in verse 7, And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river. He wants no trouble. He says, Let's expedite this and make sure all the dots are covered, all the I's are covered and the T's crossed, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I go. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. And so I think this makes it abundantly plain that what's happening is God is moving. God is looking with favor on Nehemiah, and he's turning the favor of the king toward him, and this will happen. So, verse 9 I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But in verse 10, um, the adversaries are introduced. And when Samballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. These, along with uh, one or two others that will be mentioned later, are going to be the chief adversaries. And you're going to see that it became a very uh, difficult, um, difficult situation for the people of God and very discouraging. But I think Nehemiah shows himself to be of excellent, excellent character. And he says, I'm not going to be intimidated. The adversaries are going to mock them in all of their efforts. They're going to manipulate them. Uh, they're going to threaten them. They're going to try to intimidate them. They're going to try to craftily draw Nehemiah away and kill him. And so this is what uh, godly people will encounter when they put their hand uh, to the work. More about that in just a minute. So he came to Jerusalem in verse 11 and was there three days. And he says, I rose in the night, I and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. Um, so what is it that God is putting in his mind to do? It's that he's going to be uh, busy rebuilding, taking away the reproach. And um, this gives us the lesson that godly people are in tune with God's will. And he visits all of the gates. He goes around Jerusalem. He slips out to the dragon's well and the valley gate and the refuse gate and 
to the fountain gate and the king's pool, and then he, you know, his his animal can't even pass through there. He goes up the ravine and comes back through the valley gate again and returned. He's making sure he's see, you know, seeing with his own eyes what's going on. Um, and the officials, verse sixteen, did not know where I had gone or what I had done, and he had not told any of them what he had intended to do. Now, in verse seventeen, listen to when he comes to the people and he says, "All right." He says, you see the bad situation we are in. That Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. It seems like he's very uh, concerned about this, this thought that there's shame and a reproach on the people of God and the city of God. And it's, it's basically this. Why should the Gentiles have an occasion against the people in the, in the place that belonged to the God of heaven. Can we let the Gentiles speak against these things? Certainly not, if it's at all in our power. And so it aligns with the principle that godly people are concerned with anything that might bring dishonor to God or His things. you remember in 1 Peter 2, it says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, um, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds... Um, uh, as, they, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. 1 Timothy 5, likewise, speaks of avoiding any kind of behavior or speech that would cause outsiders um, to, to cast a reproach against them. And, and Titus 2 speaks to young women, young men, and servants, respectively. And it says these things. Essentially, keep your behavior excellent so that the Word of God will not be dishonored, so that will be beyond reproach, and so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And it says, you know, good behavior so that we, they will adorn the doctrine of God, um, God our Savior, in every respect. So that's, the, that's saying it in the positive. You avoid this, but you do this. You avoid making it look bad, and you make it look good. You adorn um, spiritual things by your behavior. And then he says, come, let us rebuild and Nehemiah demonstrates his gift for leadership. Romans 12 says, you know, God has given a lot of different gifts. Some of them are unusual. Service is said to be a gift. Teaching is said to be a gift. Showing mercy is said to be a gift. And leading is said to be a gift. And it says, for any of those gifts, exercise them with diligence. And that's what Nehemiah will do. And a man of uh, you know, unimpeachable character like this is one who people will gladly follow. And so this brings us to the lessons as we wrap up um, that we see from Nehemiah chapter 2. Godly people rely on prayer at all times. But boy, when you have a stressful or a very important situation, go to God in prayer um, and make sure that you, you've done that. Godly people will have opposition. There will be adversaries. There will be persecution. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, as 1 Timothy. Matthew 5 says, you're going to be persecuted like those prophets who are before you. But don't worry about it. You will be blessed um, and be in good company. Godly people are in tune with God's will. Nehemiah uh, hears the word of the Lord and knows what he would have him do. Uh, for the people of God and for the city of God. And then as we just uh, said at some length, 
godly people aren't concerned about anything that might bring dishonor to God or his things. And then they lead others in godly paths, and they inspire dedication in others. This is where we come to um, verse 18, and we quickly wrap up. After he had said, come let us rebuild the wall, that we will no longer be a reproach, he told them, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So he's, they're following. They're, they're ready to do it. And it says, so they put their hands to the good work. We will have a lot to say over the coming chapters about um, the, the good work that godly people will be doing among God's people and in, in the city of God. The opponents immediately notice and jump on this and say, you know, they're, they're displeased by it. And they mock them. And here are the words they say. What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And you'll see that these things they say are cast far and wide. Anything they can think to say, it's, it's almost humorous. How, how, how deep they dig for these, these things, bad things to say about the people of God. But anything to discourage. Anything to discourage from the work. And do we see that uh, today? And Nehemiah answers them in a, a very appropriate way. I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah gives them a godly answer, turns away the uh, opponents for the time, and um, demonstrates himself to be a leader uh, of the people, demonstrates himself to be a person who has God's law written on his heart. Hope these things have been helpful for us. Looking forward to the next uh, few chapters. We'll begin, of course, in chapter 3 uh, at our next visit. Gary has an invitation now.